Hi, this is Brent Skousen. I'm the youngest son of W. Cleon Skousen. What you're about to hear is a live recording of a university lecture given by W. Cleon Skousen as he taught the Old Testament course. We really are fortunate to have these recordings, although at the time they weren't anticipated to be released publicly. These lectures are live and unscripted and unedited. You will feel as though you are actually there. If you're following the Come Follow Me curriculum from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, this lecture covers the two lessons from May 2nd through May 15th, including Leviticus and Numbers chapters 1 through 19. For those interested in the textbook Brother Skousen and the students are using, it's published as The Third Thousand Years, written by W. Cleon Skousen, and is available online at skousen2000.com. And new this year is a special audio version of The Third Thousand Years, found at audible.com. So sit back and join us in the classroom of W. Cleon Skousen. Enjoy. All right, now stay right with me today, and certainly stay with me Tuesday. Don't miss Tuesday. And uh, we'll have it pretty good. Now listen carefully. I want you to be able to distinguish between a peace offering and a burnt offering. I won't worry about sin offerings and oblations and so forth, but you, I would want you to know what a meat offering was made of. But there are those three kind of offerings. There were many more, but that will be enough. For, that'll get you through the rest of the Old Testament until you take your advanced course. Now, I wanted you to catch our Heavenly Father's point of view with reference to the law of Moses, he, uh, the law of carnal commandments, because he hated it. He just despised it. And he, it was necessary for him to stop treating Israel like children, or like rather like adults, and start treating them like children. And so I tried to capture for you, in the first chapter of Isaiah, I quoted on page 342, the, the Lord talking to Isaiah and saying, To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he-goats, etc. These are vain oblations. Take them away. Why were they vain oblations? Why do you say they were vain oblations? He commanded they be done. Then why does he hate them? All of you missed that? Yeah, they weren't accompanied with what? Good works and a broken heart and a contrite uh, spirit. Uh, he says, um, wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings. All these blood sacrifices don't mean anything. I want to see your personal lives. These are only teaching devices. Cease to do evil, learn to do well. Seek judgment, relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. Now, when I was taking philosophy in a branch of the University of California, my philosophy professor described Jehovah as a God of revenge and sacrifices and blood and vengeance. And it took Jesus to come along and provide the concept of a God of love and forgiveness. And so, being a sophomore, I had the audacity to ask the professor if he'd ever read the Bible. And he hadn't. Professor of philosophy and biblical studies and so forth, he pretended to represent the Bible to us. He said, no, I actually have not read it. Uh, I haven't had time, you know, but I, I studied under a very well-known authority, 
uh, and, and this was his interpretation of it. I'm just sharing it with you as a philosopher. And I said, well, can I read you a couple of passages and see what you think? And he said, sure. So I went to the library, and they did have a Bible. <laughs> so I came, and I brought it to him, and this is what, what I read. And I read some other things uh, further over. They say the same thing, that uh, the sacrifices are nothing. It isn't about blood, and so are the only teaching devices. And then I said, in the New Testament, it explains that this was done merely as a schoolmaster to bring them to Christ. She said, you know, that's fascinating that that wouldn't be pointed out when I was in school. He says, have the librarian transfer that Bible to me. I'm going to read some of it. We became good friends. Yeah. Well, it's talking about their incense. See, when, if a wicked man goes out and, and kills a, uh, a calf and burns it, and says, God, I, I did it. Now, back to the slime pits. Uh, to God, the, the incense that were, was offered every morning that went up as they gave their morning prayers, the killing of the cattle, so this was nothing. It's ridiculous. It's an abomination to have you do that when you're wicked. That's what he's saying. In other words, that is not a condemnation of incense if God has ordered incense, which he did. When the incense is in the temple, done properly, and the prayers of the people come from repentant hearts, fine, it's all right. Okay. See, he's calling everything. The whole law of carnal commandments is condemned here because it's not accompanied by what should go with the carnal commandments. Right. Oh, did another childish teaching device. The Lord said, if you're going to be like children, I'll teach, treat you like children. It symbolizes the prayers going to heaven. And uh, they would offer it in the temple each morning. And the incense went um, from the golden altar of incense. It went up uh, between the partitions. And the congregation, you see, was on the outside. And when they saw the fumes, the perfume famous, uh, the perfumed vapors going up into the sky, they knew that the priest had finished his oblations on the inside. And the ceremony was finished now. And they'd all said their morning prayers and a little formal service. Yes, an offering. Oblation usually means a pouring out. And they used to take uh, something that was very precious to them. Sometimes it could be just water. If you're on the desert, why, the sacrifice of anything precious to you. Oil could be an oblation. Wine could be an oblation. Uh, milk could be an oblation. Anything that's precious to you. It's sacrifice. That's the whole spirit of to give something, like tithing. Uh, you give of something, fast offerings. It's not $2 a month. Can't feed the poor on that. Give until it's a sacrifice. All right, now, uh, we had the family. The two sons of Aaron, of course, had their terrible experience. They got drunk, it would appear, and went in before the Lord and, and forgot where they were, thought they were back in Egypt or something, offered strange heathen fire and incense and went down just like that. And God took them home, and their cousins put them, took their bodies out of camp and took care of them. And then uh, we said just a few words about the annual Day of Atonement, which, uh, of course, is uh, Yom Kippur comes each year uh, early in the fall. And um, it was sort of a, a, a time of repentance when all the sins of the people were put on the scapegoat. And that was to say, okay, now we've got a fresh start here. Let's do it better this next time. Then I tried to uh, put over on page 351 um, the foundation stone of the pure gospel with the Ten Commandments, the simple sacrifice given to Adam, now replaced by the sacrament, 
the laws of reparation and so forth that, that really brought us justice, and then show you the stones that were stacked on top just temporarily until Christ came. And that was the elaborate system of sacrifices of the red heifer and the cleansing and so forth. If you touch the dead and all the things you ate, they had to be kosher in a certain way. All the special laws of purification, etc. All that was taken away and, and it was restored, it was replaced with what? The law of what? The word of, the word of wisdom. In other words, the Lord says, I'm not going to say, uh, don't drink Coca-Cola and uh, 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 don't uh, take, uh, don't smoke marijuana, and I'm not going to go down the list of all the hard drugs and so forth. If you're too stupid to use the brain I gave you, you're in an area of gospel fullness where you're going to go brain off all by yourself. I am not going to take you by the hand at this stage. I did in ancient Israel, but when Brother Witzel wrote his book on the Word of Wisdom and showed how there were certain things that we were losing in the refining of some of our food, sugar and flour, etc., that we were losing some very important uh, health factors that now are being artificially put back in, uh, that Coca-Cola has much more caffeine in it than in the average cup of coffee. Why, people read it and they were so impressed that uh, they started going around, if you were drinking a Coca-Cola, why, mmm, evil person. And um, it got to a point where we had what, what they called the word, word of wisdom fanatics. Well, actually, it wasn't as fanatical as, as it seemed. What was fanatical was that having obeyed a little higher order of law themselves, they counted everybody else a sinner who didn't. And the Lord said, I, I gave this to you by word of advice and counsel and wisdom. Now the church turned around and voted it a law of the church. In other words, if it's the will of the Lord, it doesn't have to say it's a commandment. We'll accept it as a commandment. But even so, it was getting too tight, too tight. And uh, the saints are beginning to say, now, President Grant, um, what's the list now? What's on the list lately? Hey? So I'm, I'm going to tell you what's on the list. There is no list. Wisdom, wisdom, wisdom. Find out what's good for you and follow a code of wisdom. We haven't got a list anymore. See, that's the law of Moses, the carnal commandments. Just want you to, to kind of catch their spirit. Now, every once in a while, you'll hear them come out and warn against the cola drinks. Uh, but immediately they will also say, uh, that's up to you. But just recognize that what's objectionable in the things mentioned by the Lord are objectionable in certain other things, too. All right? It's a spirit now. Now, I want to say very, something very briefly now about the law of Moses because excuse me, about the law of the covenant and the law of reparation. I've been writing this up in the police magazine now for the 12 years that I've been the editor, and it's gradually catching on. In fact, England was the first country to demand reparation for the criminal. Now the United States is doing it. And I just wrote a, a strong editorial denouncing the tactic that both countries are using. Because what we're doing is filling our jails with individuals who've committed crimes and having the... Um, honest, quote, and unquote, taxpayer uh, pay the victim for um, what the criminal has done. And that's not justice. It, it actually puts honesty in a position of double jeopardy. So let me, let me just remind you how the Lord said to do it, because it's fabulous. If you're uh, a pre-law student, I urge you to pay attention to this. This is the law of God, and probably the law will operate under in the New Jerusalem. From all appearances, it was the law in the city of Enoch and in the city of Salem under Melchizedek. And it was just simply this, that whenever you have offended 
if you have stolen from somebody, you not only have to pay back the thing that you took, but twice as much. And if it's a very serious offense, it can go up as high as four times uh, if you have stolen in order to put it on the commercial market. You didn't steal for food. You only have to pay back twice as much if you stole, you know, just because of, uh, didn't have that, that kind of dessert and wanted to have, have a little of it. Uh, you don't have to pay back twice as much. But if you put it on the commercial market, like uh, wrestling cattle, you see, and sold it commercially, four times whatever you took. Now, if the individual uh, has committed uh, some kind of a tort against another individual, committed mayhem or something, supposing it uh, comes up um, upon an individual going past an alley in Salt Lake City, reaches up, mugs him, pulls him down, and the fellow struggles. So he puts his hands in his face and says, don't, don't resist. And accidentally it slips into one of those orbs and out goes his eye. And so the fellow runs, he get, grabs his purse and runs, and, and the victim is able to recognize him with his one good eye. So that's Brother Skousen, I'm almost sure. That's Brother Skousen. <laughs> <clears throat> so let's say I'm brought into court, and um, they've got enough evidence. They've got his testimony plus some corroborative evidence. They did find the, uh, his pocketbook in my house, and, and I wondered who put it there, I said. And so I got all my alibis, but none of them hold up, and they'll say, Brother Skousen, you're guilty. Uh, you're, you're guilty of uh, a robbery and of uh, putting out this man's eye. Now, Brother Skousen, how much is your right eye worth? And I look down at the hot iron in the fire, and I say, well, quite a bit. Quite a bit. <laughs> All right, put a price on your eye. What is it? So I say, well, I'll be generous. Five thousand. They turn to my victim, and they ask him, uh, if 5,000 enough? He's a fellow Israelite, and of course he says, no, no, that's not enough, definitely not enough. <laughs> so uh, uh, they, they say to him, well, what will it be? He says, about 25,000 for my eye, 25,000. Oh, I said, I can't possibly do that, I'm a poor man. That's why I robbed you, I'm a poor man. But anyway, we work on it till finally I get up to 12,500. And the judge says, well, now I think that's, that's equitable. And they turn to the victim, under these circumstances, and Brother Skousen being as poor man as he is, you think 12,500 is enough? And reluctantly he says, yes, I guess so. I guess so. So he settled for 12,500. But I haven't got 12,500. So under this law, I put myself under bond, either to work for him or somebody else, whichever place I can make the most money. And I've got up to six years to pay him back. And if I get behind on my payments, I have a gentle reminder. What is it? The hot iron. Hot iron. And you don't hear of many people going behind on their debts under those circumstances. Now, they didn't throw me in jail. They don't put my, my family on welfare. They say, Brother Skousen, go out and produce. Now, I may go to work for this man for a while, and then I do have a special skill, and I find out that there's a job over here that I can take, uh, and I want to do that because I can pay him back faster. And he has to let me do that. He has to let me do that. I, anything that I can do to pay back the money faster, I have the privilege of doing. And in any event, he can't hold me longer than six years. And I have to make a reasonable effort. Now, I may get up to 7,500, and I've worked like a dog. Uh, I've, uh, he just knows I really did everything I could. I feel so terrible about that silly thing I did as a teenager and so forth. And in, the, in his forgiveness of his heart, he may say after four years or five years, Brother Skousen, get on with life. I'm doing all right. 
I've learned to read with the other eye pretty good. God has blessed me. He's been good to me. I will be charitable to you. Be on your way. Will I be grateful to him? Ooh, so grateful. Will we always be friends? Yes, we'll always be friends. Now, that's the way this thing worked. There was a spirit. There was opportunity for forgiveness. But this was a law of reparation. It was not a law of revenge as it's written up in all the law books. As I sat in law school and they told me that this was a law of vengeance, this is one of the most crude and archaic laws because if you put out a man's eye, they put out your eye and you had two half-blind men wandering around camp. That just didn't sound like God to me. And it wasn't written up any differently in any of our textbooks in the church. We hadn't had any of our LDS scholarship devote any attention to this problem. So that was kind of a challenge. So you'll do the same thing. You'll hear things that don't quite seem right to you. And so I spent two years just reading over and over and over Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then I go back and read it, read it, read it. Finally, I found my breakthrough. And I found the li just little individual passages which, which would say, uh, for example, that you can compensate for anything except uh, first-degree murder. You can? See, that, that was the key. It's only one passage. It's hidden, tucked away in there. So then I went to the rabbinical uh, authorities, and sure enough, that's what they used to do. And at the days of Christ, there was a big fight went on between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the temple priests, and they wanted to take that eye. See, no matter. The Pharisees said, no, you do it like um, Moses did it. You allow the person to compensate. You only put out his eye if he won't compensate. And there was a big, uh, real stormy conflict between them. Which one was, the, which one was right? Pharisees, Pharisees. All right, they were closer to the truth. Now, capital punishment was strange. I want you to understand that one too because there are about 30 or 40 crimes that would destroy the culture of a people and all brought the, the uh, death penalty on them. And that didn't seem like God either. So I studied and I studied and I found the breakthrough passage where you hear God saying to his prophet, they didn't repent. You didn't force them into exile, and you didn't kill them. So they have corrupted your whole society. Oh, so that's what it means to be cut off from among the people. Exile, exile. And I went back and studied again, and there it was. Now, what would happen was, if you broke the Sabbath day, destroyed the culture of Sabbath day worship, which in the Lord's society destroys the whole pattern. It carried the death penalty, which meant that the elders would come and say, now, Brother Scouse, I, I, we, we, we understand that some of our young people are not obeying the Sabbath day because they say you are not. And I say, well, yes, that's true. I'm not. Well, then we'll have to call upon you to immediately repent or suffer the consequences. I'm not going to change. I've got my freedom. That is right. And we will give your choice if you want to live like the heathens, to either join the heathens or you will remain in this community as of nine o'clock Monday morning at the risk of your life. Have I a choice? Yes. Now the Lord says if you'll enforce that, you'll keep, you'll keep the, the society clean. So that's what all those death penalties are in there for. Anything that would destroy the culture if they don't repent had the death penalty on it to make it worthwhile to leave town. 
It was self-cleansing. Now, I always wondered why, why Enoch was able to take his whole city. He took all of his city except his immediate ancestors and his immediate descendants. Everybody else went with him. Everybody else made it. Everybody else went to the temple and made their endowments and walked and talked with God. There must have been some casualties along the way. Even in 365 years, how do you make it that perfect? And this turned out to be the answer. Enoch had enforced the law of the covenant strictly and had cleansed his society of those who wanted to exercise free agency against the covenant. They had that choice. But they left the society of Enoch or were dispatched to the spirit world, which means they went more directly into exile. Any questions on those now? Now, these are all breakthroughs. And if you ask the average person about it in the kingdom, they won't know about it. And that's why uh, learn these passages of Scripture. We've got to get this into the mainstream of our thinking because we've been teaching the same doctrine as, uh, as the other sectarian uh, churches. And we've got the information here now that really tells us what the law of the covenant was like. Uh, well, they're all through here. And in your index... I've taken the whole code, uh, you take theft, for example, uh, any of those, uh, seduction, all of those have reparation listed. I've actually got the passages listed for every crime. In other words, I put in the back here, I, I, I went ahead and broke the whole thing down, just like it was a modern code, and it's listed alphabetically, any type of crime you want to look up. Here's a description of the crime, I've defined it for you, and uh, then I've given you the Lord's punishment for it and the reparation needed. Okay. Well, they've realized that the victim of the crime, society owes him something, don't they? So they're having society pay it to him instead of having the criminal. Are they recognizing that Not yet. The reparation part they've accepted. So I'm hammering in my editorials the need to have the criminal participate. At least start out on that basis. Any other question? Uh, I don't see how it'd be possible for a person to exile Right. You, you, no, you can't. The way that this, you see, was designed for a Zion society, a Zion community. Now, as Brother Dyer says, before long, we may actually start our little satellite uh, Zion societies. And we'll just set them up on the outside of Salt Lake or Provo, and certain people will be called to, to go in there, and they will actually live the Zion principles. And in that case, you can be exiled. But you see, we have a homogenized telestial society culture. Now, there's nothing to be exiled from. I mean, you are here. We have arrived. <laughs> we are a heathen society. Okay. Yes. One of the great, one of the most serious things that's happening under the breakdown of the Constitution is that we might not be able to set up Zion, Zion communities. The government might object to them. See, the... Um, the, the Mennonites are having that problem. The, um, um, what do they call it? One of those other groups. Uh, the, 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 uh, the Amish. And, uh, and, and it's a definite a violation of their constitutional rights the way they're being treated. Definitely. They were self-sufficient. They were taking care of their own poor. And we had these bureaucrats out of Washington come in with a whiplash and send some to jail and threaten all kinds of penalties if they didn't abandon their culture. Just a, as vicious a, a thing as King George ever did to the early colonists. That's our day. That's why President Lee said, will you read the 29th chapter of Mosiah very carefully before you vote? See if you can find any candidates that, that are a little closer to that. 
see if you can find some wise and good men that stand for that. And now that the election is over, I might just mention to you that a group of people sat down and said, we couldn't win the election, but let's put down the constitutional principles as it should be. And they came up with, the, um, with a platform. And if you know your constitutional law, it'll kind of excite you. The elders of Israel should have done it, but they didn't. So some real fine Christian Gentiles did it. And as Brother Benson called it to my attention, he said, it, looks, it sounds just about like J. Reuben Clark would have written it. And it was published as the American Party Platform. And if you haven't read it, I recommend it to you. It takes every major issue of our day and applies the substantive constitutional principles, knowing, of course, that it was a strictly an educational gesture. But what would be the, the constitutional solution to Vietnam? What's the constitutional solution to... Uh, welfare, and a lot of these other things are going on. And they, they hit about 98%, about where President Clark would have put it, as far as we're able to evaluate it. And if you didn't get one of those, they still have some copies left at the Freeman Institute. They have the Democrats, the Republicans, the um, American Party, and now there are two issues out on the socialists, and they are extremely valuable. See, this isn't a newspaper. It's a research documentary on these subjects. And we now have a paid circulation of 10,000 per issue. And we've only been going for six months. So it's really moving. And they cost 25 cents, as you know, for ordinary people. BYU students, they are free. So I'd put that in the file. You won't be able to get hold of that very shortly. And uh, good things that come along that you ought to put in your research file, grab them while you can. Because they get out of print, and, and then you, you will wish you had it. So this law of reparation turns out to be um, quite good. Now, there are times when you would breach the peace or you do something. You couldn't repair anything. You, it was a, an offense against the community, habitual drunkenness or something. And that's when they used the, broad, the, the, the black strap. And uh, you could not be um, strapped more than uh, 40 times, and therefore they, would, they always said only 39. Uh, but they didn't put you in jail, so you take the strap. They didn't have prisons. You either went out and repaired the damage you'd done, or if it wasn't the kind of thing you could repair damage for, you took the strap. Now, Canada allows that on a voluntary basis for misdemeanors. Rather than go up for six months and have your family go on welfare, you can elect to take the strap. And if you do, the judge will say how many stripes, supposing he says 15. Then they have to have witnesses observe because if the, if the skin is broken, it's designed to hurt and bruise, but not to crush or bleed, if the skin is broken, all the rest of the stripes are forgiven. You, the same thing is possible in the state of Delaware, but it has not been used for quite a while. A few years ago, they did a special study on those in Canada who had elected to take the strap, and their rate of recidivism, which means return to crime, it was just almost non-existent. And I keep writing this up in Law & Order magazine every once in a while to remind people that this thing that we so abhor, you see, we think of... Um, Flogging, you see, is a cat of nine tails. You can kill a man with a cat of nine tails. But this business of strapping a person and then going to letting him go back to his job and go on with life, he'll feel bruises like he'd, if he was a football player. He'll have bruises for a week or so. And he'll kind of remember that's not the route to go. That's, that's all it's designed to do. So... Um, I just wanted to share that with you because that's, that's definitely a breakthrough. And you're going to find a lot of discussion of it. I have a lot of LDS attorneys now 
that are kind of thrilled that we've got an insight there. Now, they need to go on. There's much more work needs to be done in that area, but I open it up in the third thousand years for the legal profession and the church so we could make a contribution and stop making the same mistake the sectarian churches were. Okay, now, in the next chapter, we start out with um, the migration and the march on Canaan, and that's the most fantastic thing. Those people only got out three days, about three days of travel, out into the desert, and they totally collapsed again. They were so joyous to go up to the promised land. They were carrying their um, tabernacle, their portable tabernacle had all been rolled up, and they were carrying that, and their Ark of the Covenant marched out across the sand, got up to Hazeroth, and, and all of a sudden they said, this, this manna, blah, and uh, no meat, and, and uh, why didn't the Lord leave us back where we have cucumbers, notice that, and melons, and onions, and garlic. <laughs> and um, so um, poor, poor uh, Moses, he, um, he found right off the bat that uh, they were in trouble. They had a consuming fire, as a matter of fact, start just looking up. They had a cloud of fire going in front of them. And that fire could get out of control. And it would go start licking up the outer edges of the camp, taking people and tents and whatever. And uh, so they appealed to Moses, to, can we stop that, do you think? And he asked the Lord, would you mind, uh, let me talk to him again. So he did. And um, they, they said they wanted meat. They really did uh, complain. And now you have Moses complaining. See, the Lord would have transferred all these people to the spirit world and given him a new start. Probably the late teenagers or something, I don't know. You'll notice the curse always falls on those that were 20 years old or older when they left Egypt. So anyway, he said, I'll raise up a new people to you. But Moses said, no, I want to work through these people. Now he says, what did I ever do to, to merit this? They're not my children. I didn't beget them. And how am I going to get flesh for these whining, complaining, whimpering people? I'm not able to bear this people alone anymore. It's too heavy for me. If you're going to do this to me anymore, kill me. He, he, he was a man of great ultimatums, you notice? <laughs> Forgive me or blot me out of the book of life or, or let's get this over with or take me. I, I'm ready to go back to spirit world. And um, please look on my wretchedness, he said. So the Lord said, well... All right, you don't have to govern alone. We will select 70 men. Now, we're not sure whether these were the 70 that went up and saw God or not, but we assume they were. And this is the foundation authorities think for the great synagogue of the Jews. 70 elders to help Moses govern. And uh, they were to gather together and receive the Spirit. And when they did, did they see the Spirit? Did they hear the voice of God again? And did they have the opportunity to see visions and prophesy and have a great Pentecostal experience? It was tremendous. And then the Lord says, uh, now um, we'll get a little meat. I should say something about the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin has not, has not met since 425 A.D. 425 A.D. And at least I've not heard of Israel setting it up again, have you? So the coming of the quail, they said, all right, now I'll, give, I'll, I'll get some flesh for you too. We're not quite sure what made the, the, the food poison to them, whether it was that they started eating it immediately and started gulping it down. It sounds as though that were it. They lusted after the flesh. We don't know whether it was that 
or exactly what it was, but anyway, these people who had lusted after flesh began dying off by the thousands. And uh, this is where it talks about them coming in, uh, flying in, the Septuagint says, at two cubits, whereas the King James sounds like the birds were two cubits thick on the ground. And that's too much birds. <laughs> it's better to have them come flying in where you can just get a basket and scoop them up, you know. And they come in flying low, make it nice convenient for everybody. So um, after they'd buried their dead, uh, you'd have thought everything would have been fine. But at this point, Aaron and Miriam turned on Moses. He had an awful time at this camp. Everybody's collapsing on him. And they, they said, well, maybe we ought to be getting the revelations now because, after all, you're guilty of what? You married an Ethiopian. You did. And um, he didn't deny it. But if it weren't for Josephus, we wouldn't have even had any idea when it happened. And so we know all about that now, don't we? But you'll find the average members of the church does not. So you share that with them. But it was while he was a prince of Egypt and before he understood the gospel particularly, didn't know there's any special discipline there, and uh, nothing came of it. We know of no children or anything. Uh, was the, did the Lord condemn him? No. Who did he condemn? Miriam. Oh, did Miriam get it? She was the older sister, and I think she might have instigated this with Aaron. In any way, she really got it. Who pleaded with God that her leprosy might be cleansed? Moses. Moses. No ultimatum, but just a plea this time. A great person. Now, they, the Lord says, all right, now will you get going? Will you get up out of this camp and get going? And so then they go up to um, make their, uh, their conquest of the Holy Land. And they've heard of the uh, Amorites and the Hittites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and so forth. So they're going to go up and take the land. And so they get up at Kadesh Berea, which is just down below um, Beersheba. It's down in the desert, but it has a very lovely series of springs. And it's quite a nice place to take three million people. And uh, so while they're there, uh, the people said it might be a good idea to case the place, you know, before we go up. Just get some ideas. So they asked Moses, that all right? Moses, I don't know, I'll find out. He asked the Lord, and the Lord says, yeah, if you want to go up and case it, that's all right. You want to go see it? All right. So they get, how many out of each tribe? Okay, there are two whose names I want you to remember. The Jewish representative, Caleb, and the tribe of Ephraim, Joshua. So up they went and down they came. And as I told you, they went way up to the top, and when they came down, I kind of remember now what the problem was. Was it really a land of milk and honey? Now, the first time I went over there, it was just a little spotted milk and honey. But I'll tell you when you go over there now, the most delicious oranges and bananas and grapefruit and tomatoes and vegetables and honey and milk cows, they got them. That is, it's like it used to be in the old days. And... Um, so that part was fine. It, the Lord really had picked out a good country, but it was full of what? Anax. What are Anax? They're big fellows. Now, in the Provo Herald here two years ago, a year and a half ago, I guess it was, it showed a, a Negro girl, I think about 23, uh, just uh, over eight feet. Every facet of her body in perfect proportion. A handsome woman, eight feet tall, and quite unhappy because she doesn't fit anything. Airplane seats, beds and hotels, nothing fits her. 
And so the doctors are going to operate on her and see if they could stop this glandular function. Now you can see that could run in a whole tribe of people so that their normal spirits, which we represent our size, get bodies that are over dimension, just as some, they, our bodies can be dwarfed, of course, by disease. In any event, this seems to have been their problem as nearly as we can tell. But I tell you, when they're that big, and Goliath, of course, bordered on about nine and a half feet, and that's really big. I was in the airport in Denver here three or four years ago, and a fellow uh, just about, let's see, he was seven foot ten. And uh, he had a wife about six feet, and she really looked like a little person. And they had a very normal child with him, but he'd been over to the Safeway stores on some kind of a, uh, a routine. But I just stood there watching. That's just about almost eight feet. Man of trouble maple. He was a big man. That's big. And he was a big man. I mean, he was a large, well-proportioned man. Had a little trouble with reflexes, I noticed. But um, <laughs> kind of shuffled. So they were, they were really scared. Now, the, the thing that's amazing about it, these people got so excited about this report that you'd have thought the Anaks were on them. They went into an absolute panic in spite of Joshua and Caleb pleading with them. And what did they do that was so offensive to God that Nehemiah talks about? They actually went so far as to what? Replace Moses with a new leader and get started, headed out. Moses was so depressed by it all that he and Aaron just bowed their heads and wept. But the cloud of pillar of fire came and appeared before the tabernacle. And God says, I want to talk about this thing now. What, what did he do? He sentenced them all to death. And then he didn't have it immediate. It was the same thing he said he was going to do before. But you have Moses saying, well, that, that's, a, that's so severe. Well, he said, I'll tell you what. I'll just let them die off. But they've all got to be dead here within 38 and a half years. And then, because I don't want any of them going into the promised land. Not any of them, except Caleb, Caleb, and Joshua. And Moses must have listened to that with both ears, and so did Aaron. They weren't included in the exceptions. <laughs> kind of interesting. So, um, they then, after that mutiny was over, or after the Lord had made his command, I should say, the people further mutinied by doing what? Now they went back and said, oh, if the Lord really means it that much, if he means it that badly, why, we're going to go up and take that land right now. And Moses said, well, God isn't with you. That's all right. We'll do it. We'll show him. And they just got the socks whipped off of them. <laughs> and they came down and uh, had really been beaten badly. Well, Moses says, that's what you get. Then his own first cousin, Korah, came and said, while we're here camped out in the wilderness and so forth, he said, we ought to have the privilege of going in and exercising the higher priesthood. And so should the princes of Israel. And you shouldn't aggregate to yourself, uh, aggrandize to yourself all of the priesthood, etc. And that's a very interesting conversation. And these men were trying to force God to give the priesthood to someone he said was not authorized. My ancestors couldn't have the priesthood in the days of Moses. Unless they were specifically called like Joshua was. They couldn't have the priesthood. God decides who will have the priesthood, so these men decided through petition and intimidation they'd get the priesthood. So the Lord told Moses what to do. He had the 250 of them gather at the tabernacle with their incenses, little incense fire lanterns made of bronze and uh, of what? Brass. Brass. And um, 
Uh, then Korah and Abram and Dathan and so forth, they lived down in the camp, were totally defiant. What happened to the 250? All killed. What happened to their little lanterns? They were all melted down and made into plate that was put on the surface of the altar of sacrifice. So that whenever you came up to offer sacrifice, you remembered the men who tried to exercise priesthood without authority. That's what those bronze plates were for. Every time you look at the altar, boy, you don't go up there unless you got authority. That's what. It, then what happened to Korah and Dathan and Abram? Earth swallowed up, and that was it. That must have been quite impressive. Okay. All 